Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. I love um, just the opportunity that we we get to come into each week and, and worship together and the atmosphere that is created um, and the presence of God that is so real and tangible for us to be able to declare that there, there is no other name, no other name uh, above our circumstance, our situation. But the, the scripture gives hundreds of names that, that really give us insight into the character and nature of who God is. And one of those names that is a gift that is given to us we refer to it most often as uh, the Prince of Peace. But if you read Isaiah 9, actually the, the totality is one name. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In Hebrew, it is Sar Shalom. And I want to just emphasize this because so often people think that peace means the absence of conflict. But Scripturally, theologically, peace is not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of flourishing. It is the ordered and harmonious existence. And it is an important part of what God came to showcase to us and what he desires that we do on this earth. And here's what I I heard from the Lord as I was preparing for this message today. My people aren't experiencing peace. They aren't experiencing that ordered and harmonious existence. They aren't, uh, they aren't experiencing flourishing. And the reason why is they keep falling into a pit, and we're going to talk about that today. But let me remind you that the Lord is not an instigator of chaos and conflict. But he is, however, a warrior. Exodus 15.3 says, the Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. You might not like that. But it is in the Bible. But let me help to unpack it a little bit. God is a warrior for perfect peace in humanity. God goes to war for the purpose of peace. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. And that's not just religious information. It's not just insight. That is an invitation. We are made in God's image and likeness. And he is a warrior that goes to war for peace. And so like Augustine say, says, we go to war that we might have peace. God's desire is to lead us into the path of peace. Here's what I've learned, that the path to peace often runs through the pit of pain. But God knows this about you and he knows this about me, that the world within us will create the world around us. Remember when Job said this in Job 3, 25 and 26, what I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. From time to time in different seasons, this can describe our lives. But the way of the warrior is a discipline of the soul. The way of Jesus is the ancient path to peace, so we go to war to win the battle within John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace never comes to the passive. So Jesus conquers the enemy 
to bring peace, and then we have to put the enemy in his place, under our feet. And this is something that we can practice. Peace can be practiced, okay? So all is set up. Let me tell you a story. Man fell into a pit. He couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along, looked down at the man and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, it's logical that someone would fall down there. A Christian scientist came along and said, you only think that you're in a pit. A religious legalist said only bad people fall into pits. Mathematician calculated the dimensions of the pit. A news reporter wanted the exclusive story about the man falling into the pit. A realist said, yes, that's a pit. A geologist told him he should study the rock strata in the pit. An evolutionist said, you're a rejected mutant destined to be removed from the evolutionary cycle. In other words, you're going to die in the pit so that you cannot produce any pit-falling offspring. The county inspector asked if the man had a permit to dig a pit. The professor gave him a lecture on the elementary principles of the pit. An evasive person came along and avoided the subject of the pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen the pit I fell into. Charismatic said, just confess that you're not in the pit seeing who this is touching. An optimist said things could be worse. A pessimist said things will get worse. <laughs> Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. This is who Jesus is, right? Matthew 12, 11 and 12. Then Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a, man, is a man than a sheep? You could you could really sum up theology here. Ditch theology. Jesus comes to rescue, to restore, to redeem, to get us out of the pitiful state of being disconnected from God. Doesn't spend all time all his time thinking or talking about how you got in the pit, the dimensions of the pit. He's there to rescue and to get us onto the path towards peace. But our adversary, the enemy who wages war on our souls, he wields a weapon. We know it as comparison. And it is a pit that affects all of us. A pit that we often fall into that stalls us, that stagnates us, that stops us from being us. And it is an outright assault against the original, beautiful, unique, one-of-a-kind creation that you and I have been architected to be by God. It's a pit. It's vile. It's putrid. It is repulsive. But thank God Jesus came to get us out of it. No matter who you are, you've fallen into this pit at some time or another. You know, before all the men check out and you say, I don't deal with comparison, unless it comes to boats, cars, houses, bank accounts, how your wives look and how athletic and smart your children are. Or women, this sometimes can happen, uh, even here in church. You arrive wearing an outfit and there is another woman wearing the same dress or shoes or something to that. And then all of a sudden, maybe comparison kicks in. But to us as guys, we think that's cool. We just are like, whoa, you got the same thing as I do, man. That's awesome. Um, of course, pastors don't deal with comparison unless somebody asks us, like, how many people are you running, you know? The reality is we fall into this pit. And so this is the title of my message, a pit called comparison. So let's start, like, what is the pit? 
Comparison defined in the dictionary is not really that scary or lethal. It's just a consideration or estimate of the similarities or dissimilarities between two things or people. And there is, there is a side of comparison that can be positive, right? If I see uh, some area of your life that you're growing in, developing in, I can be inspired by it, I could be educated by it, and I'm really not talking about that. I'm talking about the crushing comparison that creates ugliness and chaos and confusion, jealousy, envy, people-pleasing, the force of destruction against the uniqueness and beauty of the masterpiece known as you. And it's endemic in our culture. Sure, sure, social media has stirred the hornet's nest, so to speak, with Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest and everything that exists out there because it puts in our face, look at where others are vacationing. Look at what others have. Look at those people I went to high school with. Look at where they are. Look at what they're doing. And of course, that must mean something about me. Look at what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4, 4, and 6. He said, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So he doesn't stop there though, because it's not that toil and achievement are bad, but he does address the motivation. The motivation of your toil and achievement to keep up with the Joneses. He goes on to say, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So in other words, dreams don't work unless you do. Verse 6, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Right, this tranquility, this state of contentment, satisfaction, peace, is, is the path that God desires to lead us on, and it, it comes from within, not from circumstantial changes outside of ourselves. But Solomon talks about it. He says, comparison is like chasing the wind. There's no win in comparison. James 3.16, for where... Ever there is jealousy and selfish ambition or envy, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Chaos, disorder, social status, anxiety, distraction, wasted energy. I mean, envy occurs when you don't have what someone else has. I got to get me one of those. Jealousy occurs when you have something and it's threatened by something or someone else. So now you're looking at what you have against what they have, and of course, you feel something. And of course, it is not just the world out there, right? It's found, and it has found its way into the church, and we see it all throughout Scripture. And I want to I wanna put it on our dashboard, because it is a pit. And it is something that has been stirring in my heart, it is disgusting because it tears at the original beauty of who God made you to be. But if you look at the neon blaring billboards all throughout scripture, we see it in Cain and Abel. We see it in Jacob and Esau. We see it in Rachel and Leah, Saul and David. David was a good, trusted individual alongside Saul. But then comparison crept in, and there, there, there became strife and a struggle. We see it in the life of David and Uriah. That was Bathsheba's husband. 
We see it in the older brother and the prodigal brother in Luke 15. We see it in the preeminent apostles of Peter and John. And what it's done and what it does is it leaves a wake of envy and jealousy, violence, strife, division, loss of legacy, loss of joy, loss of the purpose and mission for, for which God created you and I to express on this earth. And I want you to be as frustrated with, with it as I am. One person said it this way, comparison is an act of violence against the self. You should write that down. Remind yourself. It's, we, all, we all have disdain for bullies. Maybe you were bullied or maybe you are being bullied or maybe you were a bully. But we all know what we feel towards bullies. But comparison is bullying yourself, beating yourself up. It, it, it is something that all of us need to address so that we can fully unleash what God created us to be and, and put ourselves in alignment with the creator's original design and beauty of who he created us to be. By show of hands, and be honest, okay, you're in church. By show of hands, how many of you have ever bought a lottery ticket? It's a lot. We should talk about that. I'm just kidding. All right. By show of hands, how many of you have ever uh, taken a flight on an airplane? Okay. About the same number of hands. Uh, how many of you have uh, either driven or drive a car? Raise your hands. Okay, great. All right. The odds of you winning the lottery are one in eight million. The odds of you being in a plane crash are 1 in 3.7 million. The odds of you being in a car crash, 1 in 4,000. The odds of you actually existing are 1 in 400 trillion. Look at that. Look at those numbers. Like you being born is an absolute miracle. It is an absolute blessing. Not to be weird, but during sexual intercourse, 300 million sperm are released. One fertilizes that egg. That's you. You and I were champions. We are champions. I, I don't think we think about this enough. Right? Your life started off in struggle, whether you know it or not. Like, I know you want everything to be great, but one in 300 million, I am a superstar. So are you, all right? Listen, Scripture says it. Isaiah 45. I'm going to read out the message uh, paraphrase here. It, it says this. Does clay talk back to the potter? What are you doing? What clumsy fingers? Would a sperm say to a father, who gave you permission to use me to make a baby? Or a fetus to a mother? Why have you cooped me up in this belly? Listen, we are unique and incomparable. I don't think we take enough time to revel in that reality. And comparison causes us to wear anxiety and fear rather than being present in the moment to discover where God is taking us, how he's ordering our steps. The greatest cause of distress in humankind, it lies in the act of comparison, which is the root of conditional acceptance. 
The fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. C.S. Lewis said, comparison is the thief of joy and the stretcher of truth. Comparison is a killer. It is a killer. How do you, how do you deal with deadly intruders into your home? How do you deal with deadly intruders that try to present themselves into your heart? Like years ago, I was at my friend's house, and he had a gardener that was attending to his, his flowers, and uh, all of a sudden, out popped a rattlesnake, and my friend and I were pretty close, and we decided to run across the street and up the stairs at the neighbor's house. But the gardener took his shovel and just very quickly chopped the head of the snake off. It's a great spiritual lesson. How do you deal with something that is trying to destroy, something that is deadly, cut its head off? My hope is that we would do that today. Uh, Let's talk about the problems of this pit. First, the pit of comparison makes you feel either superior or inferior, and neither honors God. Right? It causes you to live in the land of Ur, right? You, you, you see that others are richer, skinnier, taller, funnier, hipper, marrieder, prettier, better, and so you feel inferior. You're discouraged. But of course, there's another side here. There's people that are shorter, balder, heavier, singler, less happily marrieder than you, and you feel superior, right? You get prideful or you get discouraged. Neither of those things honor God. And I, I, this word, this is a word in your dictionary, and it, it's disgusting. But all of us at some point have wrestled with this. It's a word called schadenfreude, and it's pleasure derived by someone from another person's misfortune. Don't act like that. You all have been to your high school reunions and experienced schadenfreude because one of those people that were so cool in high school aren't really as cool anymore. And so you look at their misfortune, and there is a sense, and it's really gross. It really is, okay? I mean, especially in this time in our culture, you know, there's... There are, are these thoughts that we have. Um, recently, I was, I was asking a group about this. Like, how many of you here would like to be a professional athlete, you'd like to be married to a Swedish supermodel, and you would like to be worth $800 million, right? Yeah, I'm in on that. I mean, and yet that, that is the story of Tiger Woods, which there is a documentary out about his life, and obviously we know that, that not everything was great, even though those are the things that we uphold as being the, the most incredible. And then you, you see when somebody like Tiger Woods has some dis-ease in his life, you know, everybody, you know, loves to schadenfreude it, I guess. I don't know. Uh, here, here's a great statement for you. A flower does not think of competing to the flower next to it. It just blooms. Just blooms. That's, that's how God crafted us, so that we would bloom. And every minute that you and I spend wishing we had someone else's life is a minute we waste discovering our unique God-given purpose for being created. It is such a waste of time 
and energy. The second thing it does, it deters our focus. We become self-focused or others-focused rather than being God-focused. Hebrews 12 says this. Take this to heart. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The race marked out for us. I mean, just, just in the tangible picture of runners running in their lane and running a race, nobody records their best personal time by rubbernecking to the right and to the left. That would be ridiculous. Yet so often, God's marked a race for us to run, and we are rubbernecking, looking at everybody else running their race. You know, we see it in, in football games where somebody, you know, makes an interception, run, runs down the field, headed for the end zone, and then looks behind them in pride or fear, I don't know, and then somebody, you know, knocks the ball out from them, and they don't make it to the destination. This is us, right? What, what have your eyes been fixed on? What have your eyes been fixated on? Are they fixed on Jesus, thanking God for who you are, where you are, what he's made you to be, or are you constantly somewhere else that will create exhaustion, depression, anxiety? The third thing, the third problem of this pit is an all-out assault on who we are as God-breathed humans and our uniqueness. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in the likeness of ourselves. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's you and I. And an attempt to resemble others' likeness when you've been created in his likeness is an assault against who God breathed you and me to be. It destroys ingenuity because you're trying to fit in. You're conforming to the image of another rather than allowing the fullest expression and uniqueness of God, who God created you to be, the quality of being original. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy it rots the bones. Envy, wanting what someone else has. You don't possess it. It rots the bones. The fourth thing it does is it arouses mistrust, offense, resentment, and rejection of God and others. It causes us to have a wrong concept of God. We think greater blessings in one area of life means greater love from God. Well, look at them. Look at, look at all that they have. Look at what, what's happening in their life. Here's, here's the reality. Nobody gets the whole package. Everybody has pain. You see a snapshot. You see a highlight reel. You don't see the, the, the path that they've walked. You don't see the pain of their life. And this causes you to reject God. Well, if they have that, then I must, something must be wrong with me. No. We're all God's favorites. We are all God's favorites. 
And just because they're somewhere different, their race is not your race. Jesus had a race marked out for him. It led him to the crucifixion. Would you like that race? Probably not. Be happy and full of contentment and peace and joy in the race that he has marked out for you. Listen, this, this weekend, I want us to see this pit for the detestable, putrid thing it is that's eroding the brilliance and original creation of who God created us to be. And I want us to, to see the path out of the pit, okay? So the path out of the pit, here's the first thing. Cease being them. Stop being them. Trying hard to emulate the masses. Conforming to the box of another being. Causes you to be people pleasers. Constant image makeovers to fit in. And you lose your uniqueness. We don't get to see the unique you that God created you to be. Stop being them. 2 Corinthians 10.12 Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another, compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Causes us to not understand fully the reality of what God wants us to do. We miss it. And so trying to conform to everybody else, we're looking at what they have. We want their life and their lifestyle because we should look just like them. I know it doesn't happen here in Scottsdale very often, but it uh, sure does. Um, so we go into debt, right? We go into debt or, or we, we start to, to follow what we think will allow us to fit in. Instead of walking this path that God has for us, celebrating who he's made us to be, celebrating what we are, celebrating where we are, finding perspective in the situations that we're in. There's so much wisdom, so much beauty that myself, my family has discovered in some of the most painful moments when I'll ask God to give me eyes to see what he sees, and I'm like, wow, I would have never seen that without this situation and these circumstances. Second thing, second part of the path out of the pit is to concentrate on being you. I made this brilliant acronym for you, Yahweh's Original Unique. Right? Concentrate on being you. Love what God loves. He loves you. He created you unique. He created you with all of those quirks and nuances and perspectives. He created you to be unique. And oftentimes we suffer from comparison because we have a lack of acceptance of who God made us to be and a lack of security and identity in God. It causes us to have greed and an orphan spirit. And one, one of the things that I have observed is that all people want to be loved. And God loves us outrageously. And because of comparison, it often makes it difficult for people to receive the love of God. But, but more than anything, any one person, it isn't your mom, it isn't your dad that you most want love from, it's, it's yourself. You want to be able to look in the mirror and to love yourself and the reality is that comes from being connected to the source of life. 
for you to receive God's love so that you can see what he sees. And what he sees is what Ephesians 2.10 says, that you are a masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. And being able to concentrate on that uniqueness sometimes requires some supplemental assistance. And for me, when I find myself falling or getting near this pit, or I feel like I'm getting into a funk, sometimes I need some, some Kickstarters to get me out. And so I will find those individuals that I can see who are celebrating and expressing the beauty of who God made them to be at the fullest. And I have found it in a few individuals. One is, I'm going to show you on screen, it's a gentleman named Sick. Nick Santanastaso, and here he is. He has one arm and one finger, and he is at the gym throwing tires. I don't know what you, what limitations you've placed on yourself, but sometimes I just need to watch somebody taking what God has given them and using it to the fullest expression to ask myself what exactly, Brad, is going on with you. Or many of you know Nick Vachusik, no arms, no legs, no problem, who recounts the, his story of not being able to hug anybody because he has no arms. And I will often kick myself out of my funk by reminding myself, God, thank you, I do have two arms. Am I hugging? Am I giving, extending? And then just a few years ago, 2017, I had the honor of meeting a gentleman and his wife, Sean Stevenson. They were, they were residents here in Scottsdale. Sean passed away in 2019. He was known as the three-foot giant. He and I shared a couple of meals where he literally, I mean, put an explosive in my brain as it related to what we're talking about today. Because Sean knew that everywhere he arrived, people would immediately pity him, immediately put things upon him. And he decided to follow the unique design that God had given to him, where he, he shared that his mission and purpose for being alive was to rid the world of insecurity at two feet, eight inches tall. And he did just that. His wife, was Mindy, was an MDiv in theology, and we shared some really great conversations. But if you need to kick yourself out of your funk, Take a look at people who are uniquely expressing, dealing with circumstances and adversity, and remind yourself, God, I need to thank you for who I am. God, I need to thank you for what you have given to me, where I am in every moment. Another way out of the pit is to practice praise and peace. Listen to Psalms 139 and ask yourself, do I do this? Do I practice this? Look what the psalmist says. I praise you, God, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Then comes, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Practice praise like this. Experience peace. The presence of flourishing. God, I praise you because I am. That's in your Bible. 
I asked a group of our men, how many of you are doing this? None of, none of the hands went up. It's okay. No, no condemnation. Let's practice this. Let's, let's wake up each morning. God, I praise you. Because of the sense of humor, the, the compassion that you've given to me. I praise you for the way that I see things. I praise you for whatever it is. And then he'll release to us the, the thoughts, the precious thoughts that outnumber the grains of sand on this earth. But far too often, people can't come up with three things. Here's why. You're out of practice. We need to practice. Fourth, celebrate your genius and the genius in others. The word genius means touched by the divine. Right? I love this statement. There's no comparison between the sun and the moon. They both shine when it is their time. Celebrate your genius. Celebrate the genius in others. I want to offer a challenge to you to change your environment. It's called the sticky note challenge. Our men are doing it in Fight Club. Two sticky notes this week. And for the next several weeks, two sticky notes to see the genius in another person that you work with, that you live with, that you live around. This is not that lengthy of a sheet of paper here. You can get about eight words on there, all right? See their genius. Celebrate them. Celebrate it. Tell them it. And see if that does not produce the presence of flourishing in your life. Philippians 1.3, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But make it practical. Make it personal. Discover, ask God to open your eyes and look at that person who's been annoying you or agitating you, that boss that you just can't stand. See their genius. Find their genius. That's why you're there, to bring order to chaos. Practice praise. Fifth thing, choose contentment. Choose contentment. Hebrews 13.5. Take this in, Scottsdale peoples. Don't be obsessed with getting more material things. Be relaxed with what you have. Two people. Be relaxed with what you have. We all get attacked by what I like to call the more monster, right? And we have to be careful. It's not that stuff is bad. It's when the stuff is communicating to you that then you'll be something. Be someone. That erodes who God made you to be. We have to be careful with it. But there are people on the earth who are expressing their gifting like Marie Kondo and tells you to look at your stuff and declutter your closet and hold it up against your heart and see if it served you well and then say goodbye to it. I'm not sure about all that, but here's what I do know. This, this comparison is, is something that is a great pandemic to our culture. And like I said, it, it's in scripture all over the place. In fact, it helps us to understand that we are in decent company uh, because two of the preeminent apostles, uh, Peter and John, who are in the inner circle of Jesus, dealt with this. 
And John 20 and 21 tells the story, and you should read it, because in John 20, it is, it is really Resurrection Sunday. And so I find it interesting, we're going into Easter week here, and this is the story that goes down. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb to find that the stone's been rolled away, and the tomb is empty. And she runs and tells Peter, John is telling the story, and you have to love this story because of the way that John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He refers to himself in the third person. Don't you just love people who talk about themselves in the third person? But if you read this story, a, a foot race ensues, and John just finds it important to mention to everybody that he gets there first, and, uh, you know, basically that uh, Peter is behind. It, it comes up again and again and again in this narrative. And then in uh, John 21... Peter is having a discussion with Jesus, talking about his future, his death. And, you know, John is just right there letting everybody know he's a disciple whom Jesus loved. Let me, let me pick up in verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, who also had leaned on Jesus' breast at the supper. Get that picture. Kind of annoying. And said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said, Jesus but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Verse 23, then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So what goes down here, Jesus tells Peter that he is going to die. He is going to die by crucifixion. And like Peter his response is, well, what about him? What about John? And Jesus responds to him like he responds to you and I about comparing ourselves to other people and the race marked out for them. What is it to you? Stop comparing yourself. I have no tolerance for comparison because I have uniquely crafted you as an original beauty to run a race that is marked out for you. So stop it. It creates torment. It creates so many things that create rot and destruction in our lives. And we have the opportunity to take the hand of Jesus and just get out of this pit so that he can place us on the ancient path to peace. So to you, just a few questions like, who or what is going to define your worth? Who or what is going to define your value? And one of the things that, that I find most helpful in two specific passages, Jeremiah 1, 4 through 19, and Psalms 139, 14 through 18, is the opportunity for us, and we're going to do this, we're going to take two minutes to ask the Lord a question. So I'm going to invite you to take out a piece of paper, you can pull out your phone, and we're going to ask the Lord, what do you, like, what is one thing that you see when you see me? And on your piece of paper, I just want to invite you to maybe draw a line down the middle of the paper, because what can often happen to us is we go negative. But can I just encourage you and remind you, that's not how the Lord talks. His thoughts about you are precious. That's not his voice. But we need practice in hearing so that we might get to 
those incredible, vast thoughts about us that outnumber the grains of sand. But you might have a little bit of a wrestle with finding one word. But listen, God speaks, and we practice. So right now, right now, just ask the Lord, what's one thing you see when you see me? One thing. Jeremiah says, before you shaped me, you knew all about me. You have holy plans for me. I won't say I'm too young or too old or I'm not this or I'm not that. He says, you tell me where to go and I'll go there. I won't be afraid of a soul. You'll be right there looking after me. It's my job to pull up some of these weeds that have gotten planted in my garden to tear down strongholds and lies that come against this original, unique, incomparable beauty known as me, to take apart and demolish those things so that I can build and plant. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.